The first reading will be 2 Kings chapter 5, the first 19 verses, which uh, Tim is going to come up and read. There's a Bible up here. And then we will have Matthew chapter 11, again the first 19 verses that Sylvia will come and read to us. 2 Kings chapter 5, the first 19 verses. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given him victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter... I am sending my servant Naaman to to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Make the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go! Wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me, and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abner and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, far better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you have not done it? How much more then, when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. 
If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be as much, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other gods but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, May the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. Matthew chapter 11. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is what, this is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Rosie will probably be going, but Richard, you've given a talk on 2 Kings 5 in the past. I did, and it was very good, and it's on the podcast feed. Um, (laughs) When I I used this passage, because it's a great story and it's got so much to teach us, I focused very much on the fact that this story was really dangerous, in fact, life-threatening for the Lord Jesus Christ, um, and told us, Um, as church leaders, a really powerful message about how young women in particular have need to find 
and need to be encouraged to use their prophetic voice because they've got great work to do um, in our churches. And if you don't want to listen to me, uh, I'd really encourage you to spend the next 20 minutes or so trying to retell the story of Naaman in your head from the perspective of that young woman, from um, the moment of her enslavement to the moment her master returns with his baskets of earth on his donkey. Um, I think there's some, some great exhortation you might find there. Um, but I've come back to this story again because um, it's got lots to teach us um, and because this is the exhortation that I need to hear right now and perhaps you do too. But I'd like us all, well, perhaps with the exception of me, just close your eyes um, and I'd like you to try and imagine something or remember something. Um, maybe you're not as accident-prone as I am. But I'd like you to go back in your mind's eye to a time when you've had a standstill collision with an immovable object. It's a shame Oliver isn't here this morning because he knows exactly what that's like um, on the ski slopes. Um, This has happened to me a number of times, so it's a particularly powerful sensation. Um, I knew that I had arrived in the 21st century at the time when I walked into a lamppost because I was too busy doing something on my phone. But the worst occasion was when I was cycling to work and we lived in London and I used to cycle from Hackney in the east end of London down to Canary Wharf where my office was and in a classic moment of Richard clumsiness my foot slipped off the pedal, my foot got caught up in the pedals and I went straight over the top and smack hit the pavement very hard and it really hurt. And I'd got grit embedded in various soft parts of my body. I was bruised. I was bleeding. And I managed to get to the security cabin at the entrance to the Kenway War Estate. And I said, look, I've just had this accident on my bike. Have you got your first aid kit? And they opened the first aid kit and there was nothing in it. <laughs> so they, they flagged down a passing ambulance <laughs> um, to get dressings and stuff so I could tidy myself up. Um, but if you've ever had that experience, that standstill collision with something hard and immovable. That's the sensation that underlies a lot of what I've got to say this morning. And it was an experience, a really visceral experience for Naaman the Syrian as well. So let's imagine our way into the story. Naaman is a man of great talent, of great wealth, and of great status. And he's also sick and in desperate need. The word's ambiguous. We don't know what kind of skin disease he had. Um, But if he has leprosy, it's painful, it's disfiguring, you lose sensation. Um, In your extremities, you are prone to injure yourself and um, it makes you then, perhaps even now, um, a social pariah. So all those things meant nothing to Naaman, and he was in desperate need. And he's encouraged to go and find the prophet in Israel, and um, if you've got 2 Kings 5 open in front of you, he sets off, taking with him 10,000 talents of silver, 10,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. He's come with high expectations and great gifts. And he goes to see Elisha. And Elisha doesn't even come to see him. 
He sends a messenger out to him. This talented, this wealthy, this high-status individual and this minor faith healer in a defeated nation can't even be bothered to come and speak to him in person. And the messenger says, if you go and wash seven times in the Jordan, your flesh will be restored and you'll be clean. And at this, Naaman was furious. He was in a rage and he went away. And that is Naaman's standstill collision. That is his standstill collision of disillusionment. Naaman had come with great need and great expectation. And there's a train wreck when that need and that expectation meets the reality that Elisha offers him. And this is the Naaman that I identify with. I identify with the short-tempered individual who goes off in a rage because that's me. And I recognize the disillusionment. That sense of coming in our desperate need, filled with optimism, and then time and again, we can have a standstill collision with the reality of living as a Christian, the reality of living in a church, the reality of living in a Christian communication in a Christian community. And it's true of John the Baptist. Disillusionment pops up time and again in Scripture. Think of Jonah um, under his vine. Think of John the Baptist in prison going, was it all a waste of time? What am I doing here? What's going on? And this Jesus isn't behaving the way that I thought he was going to behave. Disillusionment afflicts those of us who are people of faith. It's, I think, part of our natural condition. Because living as a Christian, living in a church community, living as part of denomination, like any close relationship, our closeness creates the capacity both for great tenderness and for great hurt. And we need to recognize that in ourselves. We need to look out for it um, in others. And we need to work together to find reasons for hope. We're going to come back to the story of Naaman um, a little bit later on. But I want to try and give you six things. I want to give you three reasons for hope in our Christadelphian community. And I want to give you my personal testimony. I want to give you the three things that persist and keep me faithful and committed to Lord Jesus Christ. Um, because there are reasons for hope. I don't know what the opposite of disillusionment is. Illusionment isn't a real word. I typed it into Word and it underlined it in red. It's not a real word, so I don't know what the opposite is. Illusionment sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? It sounds like you know there's some sort of mystique or mystery or it's all a sham. There's a better word. Um, somebody clever can tell me what that word is afterwards. Whatever the opposite of disillusionment is, it's something to do with bright spots of hope. And here are three. Um, forgive me if you know this already, but I think it's worth remembering that this church is part of a worldwide Christadelphian denomination. It has its heritage in the 19th century um, in the teaching and the work of a doctor called John Thomas. John Thomas was a visionary figure. He was a restless intellect. He was at times a really unpleasant man, and I'm not holding him up as a saint. 
There were times where he upset people and he was rebuked for the way that he treated other people. And we need to be careful when we quote John Thomas, as we should be careful when we quote scripture about doing so selectively. But I think these things persist in the thing that he started. John, Thomas, me, the people in this church, we love this. The Protestant reformers in the 16th century had this Latin phrase for it, sola scriptura, the word of God alone. John Thomas said, this is the way to get to know the reality of the risen Lord Jesus and his father. And he was filled with a lifelong, restless search to understand what this said and what he meant. And I think this is the first thing that we should be preserving here, and it's the thing that I think we could pass on to our descendants, to our children. This restless sense of inquiry, the willingness to go wherever this leads us without fear, and not to close down conversation or debate, but to keep questioning and challenging and making this book, this story, make sense for us in our own time and place. He said this, A good cause never fears the light. The more truth is controverted, the more brilliant its polish. But error hates the light. It fears inspection. It denounces disputation. If this is true, it has nothing to be afraid of. It cannot be frightened of us bringing our questions and our challenges and our concerns. What does this mean? What does this mean for me? Is what I thought about this right or wrong? This should not be frightened. And we should not be frightened of engaging with it in that way. So, bright spot number one, this great love of the scripture as the one thing that we need to start us um, listening to the word of God. The second bright spot is us as a church. There is no paid ministry, there is no leadership, there isn't really even um, a wider church hierarchy the Protestant reformers had a great phrase for this too. They called it the priesthood of all believers. And it is truly a great blessing. When lived out practically and purposefully and honestly, it says, we're all in this together. We're all one in Christ Jesus. We all have the same capacity to read this great gift of God's word for ourselves and to teach and encourage each other from it. But it can also be our greatest curse and perhaps one of our greatest causes of disillusionment because there is nobody else. Can't blame anybody when we're unhappy. Can't blame anybody else when things go wrong, because this church is all of us. The church leaders are the people we chose. There are brothers and sisters, they're members of our family. It's a great blessing, and it's a great curse. And my last bright spot is this. It's the Greek word, ecclesia. John Thomas recognised that the word church is a really bad word. It comes with it all sorts of baggage and associations about buildings and places. And when Jesus says to Peter, on this rock, I build my church, that word is ecclesia. And lots of Christadelphians went back and they grabbed hold of that word, which then, but definitely now, is completely meaningless. But Jesus' first audience and the Greek world into which the gospel went, they knew exactly what an ecclesia was. It was a group of people called out for and with a purpose. And I don't know how you translate that into 21st century Manchester. I think the best word that I can come up with is collective. 
as in Rend Collective, the band. This idea of a group of people with a shared purpose doing great things together. And it's at its best, a collective, this collective, is one of the best ways that I know to look after the poor, the fatherless, and the widows. Those manifestations of God's love in Old and New Testament and that great verse from James about what true religion really is. For me, that's Ian. Some of you never knew who Ian Foster was. He lived in sheltered housing just down the road. And Ian found his family here. He found comfort and community and care that would not have existed for him um, in any other way. And when I wonder what that purpose is, what our collective purpose is, I think about Ian, that one person that we made a difference to, that we created a family for when there was no one else. But what is our purpose here in this collective, this place in Old Trafford? Do we know what that is? Do we agree what it is? And are we committed to it? I'll leave those questions with you. So three bright spots from our Christadelphian heritage that I think are worth hanging on to. The love of God's word and that sense of restless inquiry. That recognition that because we all can read this and work out what it means for ourselves, we are all a priesthood and a collection of saints working together in this final thing, this collective, this group of people with a purpose. You don't have to agree with me. So what are your bright spots? What would you want people to know or inherit about our Christadelphian heritage? And there are other reasons for hope too. I've been baptised a long time. I get birthday cards every year um, to remind me of something that happened when I was 17. And I've been through it all. I've been through doubt and questioning. I've had struggles with physical illness and ongoing ones with mental illness. But I'm still here. And I still fundamentally believe in the power of the presence of the risen Lord Jesus to do three things. The first is this. Jesus, all of this, is totally honest about who we are as human beings. It is totally honest about our sinfulness and our repeated inability to be everything we could be. This book does not pretend that we are anything other than we are. It tells it like it is. And one example of that are these stories of disillusioned people because that's one thing that afflicts us all. The second thing is this. It's those words that Paul uses, that we're all one in Christ Jesus. Naaman had to come and listen to servants and to minor exorcists and prophets in the land of Israel. He had to leave behind his career, his status, his talents. And at its best, the church community, the collective, can be blind to all the markers of status that exist in our world. It brings us together truly, genuinely, as equals. People who are of equal value, equal worth, equal need of salvation, equally deserving of love and care from each one of us. People that Jesus says, I will lose none of you. I don't care where you've come from. I will lose none of you, and I will raise you up at the last day.
I'm a Christian because Jesus, the Bible, speaks to human need because it never dissembles about who we really are, because it brings us together as equals before God, and because this book and the power of the presence of the risen Lord in our lives has the capacity to keep on changing us for the better, for now, and for the future. I am constantly humbled by what that belief, the reality of the presence of the risen Lord, does for and with people and the great things that it empowers them to do. That is true power. So let's go back to Naaman. How did he recover from his disillusionment? This isn't a template. This isn't the only way. This is what worked for him. And maybe some of this might help some of us too. So we're back in 2 Kings chapter 5. We broke off at verse 11 with Naaman, furious and angry. I thought he would have come and invoked the Lord God by name and waved his hand over the places and cured me of his leprosy. I don't want to be washed in this filthy river. This is a joke. It's nonsense. Verse 13. But his servants came to him and said, If the prophet had told you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? I think it's fascinating. I think it's fascinating that it's not the king of Aram, it's not the king in Israel, it's not Elisha, it's not his messenger, it's not any of his equals who persuade him. But in this very hierarchical, hyper-masculine society, it's his servants who persuade him. And it's really interesting that he's prepared to listen to them. I think that's fascinating. He's prepared to listen to them, perhaps in his greatest need. And he's prepared to give it a go. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored so that it was like a little child's, and he was clean. We'll be talking about being like little children again this afternoon. It's worth staying around for. Um, So that's the first thing. He has to be persuaded to listen. He has to be persuadable. He has to compromise. He has to go, well, actually, the things that I thought were expected of me, the gifts that I bought, the public exorcism by God's prophet, maybe even washing one of my rivers rather than one of yours, those are the things. Those things are not required right now. There are different things that needs doing, and Naaman has to recognise those and be prepared to do them. So he has to compromise. But in for me, one of the most interesting bits of this story is that compromise happens both ways. We're a little bit before Ezekiel's great revelation, the great moving chariot, that God's presence is not bound by time or space. It can move and travel. But there's this concession you must take your baskets of earth with you. If that's what you need to strengthen, maintain, build your faith, Elisha says, go ahead and do it. So there's perhaps some compromise there. And then there's this in verse 18. Naaman says, in one matter only may the Lord pardon me. When my master goes to the temple of Rimmon to worship, leaning on my arm, and I worship in the temple of Rimmon, when he worships there, for this, let the Lord pardon me. Scandalous. 
absolutely scandalous. I don't, I don't really know what the equivalent of doing that is, but it's basically saying, I think, to Naaman, people are going to look at some of the stuff you do and go, really? I thought you'd become a follower of God, and you're here right in the centre of idol worship. I don't know what the equivalent is now, um, but I don't think there are straightforward comparisons. What really matters to Elisha is you don't have to give up your big job, Naaman. You can carry on as long as your heart is in the right place. Go in peace. It's an ambiguous answer, but I think it gives us some interesting um, pause for thought about compromise. Right. Where have we come? I don't think I, you, any of us should be surprised when we have that standstill collision experience of disillusionment. The story of Naaman, the story of Jonah, the story of John the Baptist, there are probably other people say it's probably inevitable. It's probably going to happen to all of us once, maybe many times in our lifetimes of faith. It's in the Bible there to remind us and reassure us. It's why, yet again, this is God's book, but it's also man's book as well, because it's so true to our human experience. What would I like you to do? What do I need to do? Do you know who right now is feeling disillusioned? Because there are. There will be people who are in that state of mind. You shouldn't be surprised when you find it. You should be looking out for it. Are you doing that role that Naaman's servants performed and talking to them? There's always somebody who needs a listening ear, persuasion, talking down from that position of rage and disengagement. If you're disillusioned, who are you prepared to listen to? Naomi was prepared to listen to his servants. In the context of his day, the most unlikely people. But challenge and comfort and reassurance can come to us from the most unlikely places. Where does compromise happen? Where do our compromises need to happen? Where do our compromises as a church need to happen? We saw from the story of Naaman that there was compromise on both sides. So what work do we need to do there? Think now, this evening, what three things are bright spots are worth clinging on to in our Christophan community, in our collective here at Old Trafford? What three things still give you reasons for faith and belief? And finally, there's a reading of this story that I haven't given you yet, and it's where I want to finish. Time and again, leprosy is not just a skin disease in scripture. It's an allegory for human sinfulness. And so Naaman the leper, Richard the sinner, came and was given a fresh start through baptism, through washing in the waters that God had provided. And then Naaman and Richard were sent out to work out what it meant in practice, whether that was baskets of earth or working out how to fit their religious belief into the life that they needed to live. But they went with a blessing from God and from his representatives. Go in peace. And that is my blessing for you.